this morning's scripture for the message is Exodus 4, 1 through 17. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with you, your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Well, in the year 1929, President Herbert Hoover established the position of White House Press Secretary. George Akerson was the first to hold the post, speaking to the press on behalf of the President of the United States. Since then, there have been over 30 press secretaries. You've probably seen clips of them addressing the media, speaking about the positions of the current president, how he views events, what his stance is on particular policies. And by all accounts, the job is not for the faint of heart. So I read this past week that only five press secretaries have stayed for the full term of the president who hired them. Marlon Fitzwater, press secretary during some of the latter years of Reagan's administration and the first Bush administration, once said, I think it's too high pressure. I don't think a press secretary can survive in that kind of pressure cooker for more than four or five years. Representing the president is a stressful task. We continue this morning in our study in the book of Exodus, and 
This book concerns events that took place over 3,400 years ago. God's people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. Moses, a Jew who spent his growing up years in Pharaoh's household, has escaped to Midian after wrongfully killing an Egyptian. And in chapter 3, we see that after 40 long years, Moses is confronted by God and given a mission. There in chapter 3, verse 10, God says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses is to be God's representative, this specially sent deliverer, and even more than a press secretary representing the President of the United States, Moses will both bring the message from God and then execute the plan to deliver. So how will he respond? I mean, talk about pressure, right? Marlon Fitzwater has nothing on Moses. Will Moses respond by confidently accepting that task, or will he shrink back in fear? On the passage Ashley has just read for us, we see the conclusion of a conversation between Moses and the Lord coming from the beginning of chapter 3. And this morning we see it come to a close, and we see two main things in these 17 verses that wrap up the conversation. First, in verses 1 through 9, we see the signs of the deliverer, Moses. And then second, in verses 10 through 17, we see the reluctance of that deliverer. So first, the signs of the deliverer. So already in chapter 3, Moses has expressed doubt in himself and his ability to carry out God's commission, but God has given him a lot of reassurance He's promised Moses that the people will listen to him, that things with Pharaoh will be tough, but eventually it'll work out. They'll escape and they'll actually plunder the Egyptians on their way out. But even still, Moses doesn't feel cut out for the task. Look there in verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. So God has just told him in chapter 3, verse 18, that they will listen to him. But Moses isn't so sure, is he? It seems far-fetched. I mean, God, I've been a a shepherd for 40 years. I tried that whole deliverer bit. Do you remember? That was a dumpster fire. What's going to be so different this go-around? Well, if they simply don't believe me. Well, there in verses 2 through 9, God responds in great kindness to Moses' concern. And he does so by giving Moses three signs, three miracles to work in Egypt. These three signs are not meant to be mere spectacles, sort of magic tricks for Moses to perform. They're meant to prove to the Israelites to whom he's going that he indeed has come on mission from Yahweh. We see that there in verse 5. God gives Moses these signs, not just to make their jaws drop, but so that they may believe. So there in verse 2, we see the first sign. God asks Moses what he's holding, and Moses looks down, and he's like, a staff? His tool for herding sheep that had probably felt like it became part of his hand after four decades in the wilderness? And so God tells him there in verse 3 to cast that staff on the ground. And Moses does so. And amazingly, it transforms into a snake. I love there in verse 3 what Ashley chuckled as she read it. So we, we both thought it was funny. Moses just starts running, right? 
Uh, he never seems to be super confident in his own ability throughout this whole interchange, but at least he shows he's got enough sense to run from a snake, right? He's a smart guy. But God is about to show his power in verse 4. He brings Moses back and commands him to put out his hand and snatch the tail of the snake. Moses obeys, and instantly, incredibly, the snake switches back into a staff. But God's not done. Verse 6. Next, he commands Moses to put his, his hand inside his cloak. Moses does so, and when he retrieves his hand, it's, it's flaky and, and diseased. The word leprosy there covered a whole gamut of skin diseases. So this wasn't necessarily Hansen's disease, what we would call leprosy today. It's a, a condition of the skin where it was flaky and becoming, by all means, more weak. And so his work-worn hand, strong with labor, is sick. But in verse 7, God commands him to put his hand back inside his cloak again. This time, when he pulls it out, it's completely restored like nothing had happened. And so at that point, in the light of those two amazing signs, God says to Moses there in verse 8, If they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God is so merciful, isn't he? He gives not one, not two, but three signs to kind of boost Moses' confidence to prove he is God's appointed deliverer. If they won't believe the first one, try the second one. If they don't believe the second one, there's a third one in your back pocket. And by God's power and grace, we'll see in the coming chapters that these signs do indeed work, and the people believe. The signs go a long way to proving Moses' credibility. And, and church, it seems like these, these signs are not just merely things to show Moses' credibility. Uh, like signs in all of Scripture, these signs seem to also be teaching us truths about God himself and his character and his power to deliver. So let's just take that first sign, for example, turning the staff into a snake and then back to a staff. The, the snake was significant to Egypt. It was especially important in Egypt. If you think back to some movies or whatever you've seen or textbooks you've read about Egypt, you'll remember Pharaoh's crown with that cobra face coming out of the top. The, the snake, particularly the cobra, was associated with worship and power and prestige. And not only that, but I think you might recall the passage we studied before Christmas a month ago from Genesis 3. And remember... Satan taking the form of a snake, tempting Eve and all of mankind into sin. At that time, God had cursed Satan and cursed the serpent and stated that from that time on, there would be a continual enmity between the lines of offspring, those of Eve and those of the serpent, all those opposed to God. And so what do we see in this sign? We see clearly God has power over the snake. He has power over Egypt. He has power over Egypt's idols. He has power over Satan himself. We fast forward to the Gospel of John. 
And you'll see God sending yet another deliverer, another prophet who would also perform signs and wonders, transforming water to wine, healing the sick, raising the dead, not merely to perform magic tricks, but to prove his identity, to point to God's power to deliver. Just as Moses would perform signs to show himself to be God's deliverer, hundreds of years later, Jesus would perform signs to show himself to be God's final and ultimate and greatest deliverer. And so Moses here receives these signs, and I'm just guessing they kind of took his breath away, at least after running from the snake, right? I mean, what was he thinking? What is he thinking? Here he is in front of the burning bush, hearing this muddy voice of the I am, being given signs to prove the truth of his mission, and how does he respond? Will he continue to have doubts? I mean, certainly these signs will give him greater courage, won't they? Look at verse 10. And here we see our second point. So we've, we see those signs of the deliverer. Now we see the reluctance of the deliverer. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses still wants out. In chapter 3, verse 11, he had asked, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In chapter 3, verse 13, he had asked what he should do if they ask him who sent him. In chapter 4, verse 1, he, had, he fears they won't believe him. And now he's just thinking up the next in a litany of excuses. And he's unwilling. After even seeing those miraculous signs, he still feels like, God, you just have the wrong guy. There in verse 10, notice how Moses addresses the Lord. He doesn't use the Lord's name Yahweh. That had been proclaimed to him in chapter 3, that name translated Lord with all caps in your English Bibles. He uses the title Adonai, shown in your Bibles as Lord with that uppercase L and lowercase O-R-D. That title means sovereign or master. And so Moses, it seems, is recognizing God as this masterful, sovereign, full of power. And yet he backs away. He sees God's might, but even more glaringly, he sees his weakness and powerlessness. God is sending him to speak words of deliverance, but he can't. His mouth is too frail. So uh, we aren't sure what Moses' condition was in this story. There are plenty of speculations to go around. Perhaps he simply wasn't educated and didn't speak um, well. Perhaps he didn't have the skill of an orator or a public speaker. Perhaps he was nervous. Perhaps he didn't know the Egyptian language well. Maybe he had worn off over 40 years. I think most likely is that he had a speech impediment, a stutter or a stammer. But whatever the case, he feels entirely not up to the job. God is calling him to bear a message, and yet the very fundamental physical requirement needed to proclaim that message touches on this sensitive nerve for Moses. I am not eloquent, he says. God has just given him these spectacular signs, but Moses still can't get past his own insecurity. He's never been able to speak well, he says. 
back 40 years ago, even now. So maybe, just maybe this will be the final straw, right? Maybe this will disqualify him. Maybe finally God will see that he should just go on and find somebody else. Maybe Moses' weakness is too much for God to overcome. But look at God's response in verse 11. It reminds me of his response at the end of the book of Job. After all of Job's complaining and frustration. Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See what God is saying? Moses, remember who I am. Remember that I am. I've commissioned you. I've given you a message. I've promised you it'll be effective. I've given you signs. I will be with you. As we read these two chapters of conversation, the main takeaway that just evidences itself over and over again is just how powerful God is and how powerful Moses isn't, right? I mean, look at God. This burning bush that doesn't burn up, showing in a powerful image how God's power never runs out. God introduces himself to Moses as, I am who I am showing his self-existence, how everything is dependent on him and he's dependent on nothing. He gives signs that testify to his power and his mercy, that he will condescend to give signs so that finite men see him as their deliverer. And even after all that, Moses hesitates. I'm not eloquent. I'm not the right guy. Do you see his unbelief? Do you see how he's doubting the effectiveness of his voice? But in reality, what he's doubting is the effectiveness of God's voice working through him. And God just kindly reminds him that his voice only works because God made it to work. God is the creator. Who has made man's mouth? He asks. He's showing Moses that he's not just some sort of public speaking coach, kind of a tutor to come alongside Moses and give him strategies to overcome his stutter. He's not even merely empowering Moses' mouth with some sort of otherworldly supernatural ability. No, he's saying, I made your mouth. The one commissioning Moses is the one who created Moses, who fashioned his lips and his tongue and his teeth and his gums and his throat all to bring him glory. He's the creator. That's who he is. And so he says, in light of that, Moses, in light of who I am and what I've called you to do, verse 12, go. He said this many times already. But again, go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Again, church, see the, just the, the mercy of God condescending to Moses' weakness, condescending to put his, his divine words in the mouth of a frail man. God's words, the, the voice that had first spoken creation into existence, that voice, those words placed in the mouth of a man who couldn't talk well. That's grace. 
that God would even think to use us to communicate his divine message. Certainly now Moses will obey, right? Certainly being reminded of God's creation power will make him all the more ready to grab onto the task at hand, right? Verse 13. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Oh my gosh, Moses, right? Enough already. You've seen the signs. You've met the creator. You've taken off your shoes. You've cowered in the corner in terror of his holiness. And now he's calling you to this magnificent task. Why won't you obey, Moses? Why won't you take your eyes off of your feeble self and fix them on the all-able God who's calling you to action? Why this unbelief? We see there in verse 14 that God's patience is also almost up. It says his anger is kindled. Moses is being rebellious and disobedient. And he's using his weakness as a crutch and a, a kind of a smokescreen for that. He's inciting God's righteous anger. Forget the, the possibility of the Israelites not believing God's message. We're going to have to get through Moses first. He himself doesn't seem willing to believe it. Maybe God should move on to another candidate, but he doesn't. Amazingly, yet again, God shows mercy. And he does so not by taking away Moses' weakness, but by providing a helper, Aaron. Aaron's a good speaker. Beyond that, he's just really excited to see Moses, his younger brother. It's been a while. So God says Moses and him will both work together for the deliverance of God's people. As Moses is the mouthpiece and prophet for God, so Aaron will be for Moses. He will be Moses' prophet. Moses will be as God to him. Aaron will speak to Israel. See again God's kind forbearance with Moses' weakness and sin and unbelief by providing a helper. Alec Matir says, the Lord did not take away or even promise to take away Moses' nervousness or to impart boldness to him. He calls him to a position of trust. And so it appears Moses relents. He's run out of arguments. God wins and his, his plan of deliverance marches on. And as we zoom out from these chapters, three in the first half of chapter four, and this extended dialogue between Moses and Yahweh, I think two main truths emerge as evident to us. God is all powerful and Moses is all weak. I mean, don't you see how insufficient Moses is? He's been out of Egyptian culture for 40 years. His mouth doesn't work. He's been a wanted man. He's failed before when he tried to deliver. He's been working as a shepherd with dull sheep. He's insufficient for these things. And you know what? He's right. He's not the best candidate. You see, God isn't after the best candidate. He's after the man he's chosen. He's after the man he will use. And Christian, isn't that just like God? If you've known God for long, you know that he delights to use weak, broken, powerless people 
to showcase his splendor, power, and might. It's in weakness that God's strength shines most clearly. Remember what Peter read for us earlier in 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In church, the most amazing way God ever used the weak to shame the strong was when he sent his son, the mighty king of the universe, this very agent through which creation was brought into existence, that son, that king, sent to empty himself, to take on the form of a servant, not to come on a royal steed dressed in royal robes, born in a humble major, coming from a down-and-out city. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Associating with the weak and the sick, experiencing poverty and hunger and thirst and trial and temptation and abuse. Even to take on himself the sins of his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see Moses again, and this time he's speaking to the Israelites, and he's speaking to them what God has told him. And he, he says, this is what God has told him. I will raise up a prophet like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. Jesus was that ultimate prophet, wasn't he? That ultimate Moses. Uh, just like God had put his words into Moses' mouth and in Aaron's mouth, he would put his words into Jesus' mouth, and Jesus would never fail to communicate that message perfectly. After all, he was the word made flesh, a more perfect, qualified, and suitable prophet, a more perfect, qualified, and suitable speaker, a more perfect, qualified, and suitable messenger would never be found. And Jesus, Jesus never resisted God's call, did he? He never shared that unbelief with Moses. He never turned down God's mission. He never rejected God's will. And yet when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate for trial, this man with a perfect mouth to proclaim perfect truth, what did he do? kept silent. A great prophet whose mouth was filled with the words of God, venturing no defense, remaining quiet in order that he might give himself up to death for us, taking on our sin, taking on our unbelief. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore that punishment for all the sins, all the rebellion of those who would repent and trust in him, including Moses, including you. If you haven't turned to Christ and you're here with us this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. But your unbelief will condemn you. 
instead of risking that, turn to Christ and let all the condemnation for your unbelief flood down on him. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to someone sitting next to you. We'd love to share with you more about what it means that Jesus is our deliverer. And brothers and sisters, do you see, do you see here this greatest display of God's strength and weakness? The very son of God becoming weak in order to squash the serpent and deliver us from death. Through his weakness, we are made strong. And now, and now united to him, we are called not to ignore our weakness, not to despise our weakness, but to embrace our weakness in humility so that he might be the one who's shown to be mighty. Jesus isn't weak anymore. But we are, and our weakness is redeemed through him. Church, your weakness this morning is redeemed through a weak and now victorious Savior. Your weakness now drives you to this mighty king who has promised to work in and through you for his glory. So Christian, don't ever underestimate what God can accomplish through your weakness. Are you weak this morning? Do you feel inadequate? Well, congratulations and welcome to the club. You're qualified. You know God's powerful deliverance and now you're the perfect candidate to communicate that gospel that has been worked through weakness to greatness to the lost around you. Brothers and sisters, your weaknesses only better qualify you to proclaim the beauties of Christ because it's in your weakness that his greatness is magnified. If we're really about promoting Christ and not us, then let's embrace what makes Christ great, not us. Tony Marita writes that God is looking for reporters, not orators. We do not have to make fine speeches. We just give the news. And so, church, there's this news to proclaim. There's a task at hand. And God delights in using weak people to proclaim it. Is that you? Well, then let's get after it, because it's me too. Let's pray for boldness in our weakness. Lord, we love you. We love meditating on your gospel and how every passage of scripture points us to seeing a different facet of it. Jesus, we love how you have turned the world upside down, humbling the mighty and exalting the weak. Lord, our world loves to exalt those who lord it over us and to diminish the role of those who have no power. But Lord, your kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And so as your subjects use us, use our weak mouths, use our inadequate words, use us to proclaim your excellencies until you return. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.